I'm sorry, Dave, but I have to take issue with this kobold nonsense. It's clearly kobold. I mean, standard British English spelling conventions, if you don't want your vowels interacting with each other, then you put two consonants between them, don't you? I mean, you don't hear people referring to the lead singer of U2 as Bono, do you? Oh, hang on. I'll call you back. Come in, my child, out of the cold And listen how the story's told From fairy tales to happenstance The dice rule every random chance Take off your coat and stay a while We'll roll in that deep percent time Hi everyone, it's the 25th of May, which is exactly a year since I started doing this podcast. And I'm going to celebrate by getting through some call-ins because I've got loads backed up for a couple of weeks now. I've got a couple of new callers, which I'm really pleased about. I'm not sure if I'll get to those today. I'm going to try and get through everything in order. Bill Lee, too soon, man, too soon. So that was Edwin, of course, responding to an episode I did a little while back back now about uh, characters dying uh, too soon for Bill Lee. (laughs) We won't dissect that quite yet. I've got a few more messages from Edwin, so I'm going to play those now. Hello, Dave. It's Edwin here. Um, I wanted to to call in uh, in response to your episode 170, um, where you have call-ins about Dark Sun and uh, reflect on the second session. Uh, To put what I'm going to say into context, um, I was able to join the campaign in this second session. Um, I haven't had any previous experience of the Dark Sun setting, um, and I really enjoyed the session we had. I'm glad the call-ins have moved on from character death. Um, To me, that debate seems a little sterile. as Jason says, it could just come down to numbers. Do you die at zero? Do you die at negative five? Um, now, having said that, I haven't followed the full debate, which I know is going on elsewhere. I'm glad the comments have moved on from that because um, there are lots of other more interesting things coming out of the hot sun. Um, I love the fact that a, a minor remark about flip books has prompted Goblin's henchmen to go off and do something completely different, uh, something new. Um, that probably says a lot more about him and his creativity, but also it's it's an indicator that, you know, podcasts and talking about these things do create this cross-fertilisation of ideas. Um, the Shay, Shay is always going on about creating a community, and I think, I think that's right. Um, I think there's a lot going on. Um, the character death and um, encounter with the blood-sucking plant uh, did serve a purpose. I mean, it set the scene very nicely. 
Um, I love Eamon's phrase, planted with the bastards. Um, yeah, that's where we are. Um, in the second session, we were very risk averse. Um, not only did we avoid the cat eye and hornet's nests, um, but we also had a big detour to hide from an elven war band and declined an offer to go clean out monsters from a mine. Um, perhaps the lack of XP and the abstract nature of money did contribute to that. Um, of the two new characters introduced in that session, um, it's perhaps significant that mine has the ability to fight on below zero hitch points and that Spencer now has advantage against giant insects. Um, we're, we're I know risk-averse play um, can be very unsatisfactory for everybody involved, um, which is why, you know, gotcha monsters and over-deadly traps are just silly and bad ideas. Um, I hope we, we get the balance right. Um, I'm sure after a few sessions we'll settle uh, into a style um, and a narrative arc, uh, which will allow us... Um, um, to go forward. I mean, the style, that style might be the ambiguous morality that you mentioned. Um, being risk-averse didn't stop us from getting things done, um, and we did encounter some wildlife rather too closely. Um, and perhaps it's lined us up for some trouble in the next session. So, you know, we didn't, you know, I don't want to give the wrong impression. We We did stuff. I think you got the setting um, and the description of the various hexes about right. Um, you know, um, again, it will take a few sessions to settle down into that. Um, the artwork helped. Um, another great help for me was um, uh, the journal written by Angel uh, in character. Um, on the discard channel, she'd, she'd written up the first the first session in character of a Thrikuin trader. Um, and that was great. I mean, I, I benefit a lot from other players um, because I'm not very good at on-the-spot role-play. Um, I think the same can be said of mapping. That That's a, a form of, a, of player agency. Um, I'm, I'm a great fan of mapping. Um, I think it's a part, part of resource management. Yes, m mapping... Um, as resource management and player agency. Um, I think, I hope we'll be able to go back to some of the hexes we've been in um, and that in future, the things we've found there um, and our actions there will have real consequences in, in creating the world. Um, I mean, that's what the map's for to, for me, to tell you where you've been and what you will find when you go back there. Um, yeah, knowledge is power. Anyway, um, as you can probably tell, I, I enjoyed enjoyed our sessions um, session. Um, it was great fun, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next time. Cheers, man. Hey, Edwin. Thanks for this. Loads there. Yeah, appreciate the call in. Um, yeah, I'm I'm kind of with what you're saying about community. I mean, I feel a bit a bit bad. I haven't had a chance over lockdown spending a lot of time. It's brilliant spending loads of time with the family, but there's just not those opportunities. Don't have a commute to really listen to podcasts. I'm not listening to much else. Um, but yeah, it still feels 
like the community is lively, getting lots of call-ins, the discussion's going on, getting lots of gaming in, so it's fantastic. But, uh, yeah, my apologies to the other anchorites for not engaging as much as I otherwise would when I've got my commute. I am not missing that commute. Actually, it's interesting. I, you know, it's one of the things I don't think that's ever going to go back to normal. I travel two hours a day, not every day, but when I go into work, and I just don't think that is going to be required of me very often um, anytime soon. Quite often I'd go in for a meeting here, a meeting there. I don't think we'll bother getting together for those kinds of meetings now that we've established we can do them on Zoom. It's funny at work, I, was, I, I remember last year several times saying, look, I've only, got, I've only got to come in for this one meeting. I'm driving an hour each way. Why can't you Skype me in or something? They're like, oh, no, we're not really set up for that. We don't have the technology. <laughs> they found the technology in about three days <laughs> after lockdown. So there we go. Um, yes, I've enjoyed what Goblin's Henchman put out as a result of that sort of tangential thought. Yeah, it's good fun. I think it was uh, it was Comrade Comrade Kinch, his expression to sum up uh, Dark Sun. Things about motivation. It's funny, isn't it? Um, I, I think you've got those. Sometimes some campaigns interweave it, but you've got those two different sort of motivations, haven't you? The old school one is there's monsters, there's gold, kill them, take their stuff, get XP, and that's relatively simple. It's morally ambiguous of course, if not just <laughs> downright downright objectionable. Um, but that's not what I was going for with the Dark Sun. And then you've got your, you know, the more heroic campaign. There's the world. It needs saving. Uh, go off and save it. And I kind of didn't set this one up that way either. And I think what I'm doing in the early sessions is trying to, you know, find out from the players where this is going to go. I mean, the thing about Dark Sun. I mean, if if you read the published modules, and I am interacting with quite a, quite a lot of the published modules, and the campaign will interact with them. But as I've said before, I'm sort of um, I'm I'm twisting them or just pulling out bits that I want. Um, and that's very much how uh, Dark Sun, I think, was seen in the published products. So I'm looking at um, the Road to Uruk at the moment. And the Road to Uruk, the set setup is um, there's an army coming. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna sack the city. So um, the players must band together to get an army and go out and meet this army on the plane. That's it. You know, it's not. There's no time spent going. Well, well why? Um, and I think that's where I'm going. I think I'm going to set up that there's a terrible threat that threatens the world. The nature of the threat is not completely clear, uh, but the players ought to do something about it. But then, all the while with Dark Sun, you've got the fact that um, the threat is unbeatable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the planet's dying anyway. <laughs> and there's no hope of glory or reward after death. So, <laughs> so, so there's also the temptation to just kind of fiddle as the world burns. Um, and so I'm open about where the players want to want to take you. But oh, having mentioned Rota Uric, I mean I've done a I've done a fun thing. Um, the, the the published modules for Dark Sun are are too much of a treasure trove to ignore. But there is a heavy heavy uh, meta plot, and there are the books as well. So I've worked my way through through most of the published books now, and I'm I'm trawling through the modules. And one of the things I've done, you, you can pretty much play your way through a whole implied campaign through all the Dark Sun uh, products, which which starts sort of just after. Um, the events of the first part of the first Dark Sun uh, series of books. 
And I've decided, I've decided to just start my campaign slightly earlier. So much, firstly, much of the meta plot, although those characters exist in my world, they haven't been introduced yet, but the plot of that story hasn't really started kicking off yet. It's only just underway. And also, instead of starting the characters in Tyr, which the implied campaign does, I've started them in Uruk. Uh, which means they begin to interact with the events. If you know the, if you know the material, mm. be, they begin to interact with the events in a different way. Should this army ever be, um, ever be raised, they're sort of they're sort of coming at that whole conflict in a different direction, which has the potential, depending on what the players want to do, to really twist and subvert. I quite like what I've come up with. There's the potential that that whole meta plot gets completely flipped now i'm hoping the players don't know that metaplot particularly well most of the satisfaction of of flipping it is just really my own <laughs> as i'm working through those materials um but yeah i'm hoping i'm sort of planting in these early sessions i'm planting some of the seeds for big tasks that they might take on and i'm looking forward to seeing uh, what they nibble on i'm glad you're enjoying it edwin i also have really enjoyed um angel's write-ups I know in some campaigns, I mean, I just enjoy that people are freely doing it. In some campaigns, you'd withhold your XP or give extra XP for people doing that. I've tried to, I've tried to um, capture some of that with, by, by saying to people, um, if you want to level up, you have to do your, do your one-line summary. <laughs> so, so everybody has to advert, remember which sessions they played in because uh, they have to record on their sheet that they played in the one where... Um, and then summarise the session, and that's how they get their one XP. It's just one XP per adventure. They get their XP for that adventure. Anyway, cheers for sticking with it, Edwin. I'm glad you're enjoying it, and I very much appreciate the call in. Cheers. And now I've got a couple of calls from Josh. Hey, Josh Beckelheimer here. So, dude, I love your uh, Dark Sun uh, Continual Light game system you've created. I think you've done an amazing job with those little rules of taking that system and really adding something special to it. Adding a setting within the rules without an actual campaign setting. And I think that's really um, important because I could read that. Because I honestly don't know anything about Dark Sun. I just know of it. And so I think it's great that I can read those rules and I have an idea of how this um, setting is and how this world is going to be. Hey, Josh Beckelheimer here. So I pretty much agree with you on the whole edit situation. If it's free or I spent maybe like less than $5, whatever, I'm not going to care. But once I start spending more than that, I'm going to be upset for you know grammar spelling and if the rules just seem bizarre or kind of broken or they just don't mix together or maybe i just can't grasp it and i want to ask a question and i don't get a response it's kind of annoying and it's also annoying when i get the response over icr rpg of oh you just have to play it to understand the rules it plays better than what it's written what do you mean it should play exactly how it's written and I can read how it's going to play, and that's what, you know, throws me off of ICRPG. I can read the rules, and I'm like, eh, it's not for me. And it's just annoying when that happens, because, I'll, especially with ICRPG, when I ask a question about it, and I get a response with, well, they don't do it that way. So they don't do it by the book? But whatever. You know my rant on that. 
But anyways, it's true. If it's free or just a few bucks, I'm not going to care. But if I spent more than that, especially if I spent a money on a physical copy and not a PDF, I'm going to be pissed. And I don't know. It's just one of those things that, like, I understand you're a gaming company, but most of these gaming companies are small. And that to the point where I should be able to reach out to someone and they, you know, respond to me. Even if it's just a basic generic thing that doesn't help me, at least they responded to me and acknowledged that I existed. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Uh, I appreciate your comments about the Dark Sun. I'm I'm putting another link in the episode notes to the Dark Sun playtest rules. They're not uh, in any kind of finished state, um, but they're certainly playable because we're playing from them. What we've done, four episodes now, fortnightly. Um, and I'm having a I'm having a good time running it. Um, I don't think I've exactly nailed some of the some of the add-on mechanics, um, but uh, we've kept it very simple. And it's amazing what you can do. You, you find yourself sometimes looking around for <laughs> an ability roll, <laughs> but uh, but there aren't any. <laughs> so we've just got the in six thief skills, which I've expanded. I make the the ranger in six skills do quite a lot of work. In a, in a setting based on survival. Um, but otherwise, well, yeah, you, you're always looking around for a skill role when people are talking, when they're negotiating, but there's nothing there. It just goes how it goes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's going all right. It's going all right. Thank you. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to hear people's comments on that. I mean, to me, I suppose I hadn't fully worked through that idea that it was it, it would imply the setting. Um, I do like to give starting characters some flavorful equi- flavor, flavorful sorry some flavorful equipment um, that ties them to the setting uh, and interesting equipment lists. Um, and then I wanted another I wanted another element in character creation that really gave your character a place in the world. Um, so I introduced these this list of concepts. So, but basically, because it's a really really light system, um, and the attributes don't even do very much. So there's not much variation between starting characters. So you have your choice of of race, and then you've got your choice of concept, which just gives you a couple of other little tweaks that you can do, and just gives people something slightly more interesting in character creation. But I haven't really used those. I haven't used them enough, um, and so I'm having this I'm having this issue of sort of working out exactly. Um, how to motivate the characters in the setting. But I think at, at the moment that's just consisting of laying out their options and then seeing what they what they bite on. Um, yeah, and then the editing. Yeah, just thanks for your supportive comments there, really. Um, yeah, I, I just... If you're, if you're charging money for an expression of a rule system... Um, you want to you want to be really careful, make really sure that that people understand it. And I certainly have the same thing with ICRPG, where you look at the rules as written. I mean, I can I can run that, I can make a good game out of it. But then you look at a lot of the things, and you go, mm, that seemed like a strange choice, and I'm not sure why they've put that there. And then adherents of the system go, yeah, yeah, well, we don't use those, <laughs> or, or or they they don't they don't play how it's described there. And you just think, well. You know, bring bring on the second edition. I'm looking forward to that second edition. Maybe some of this stuff is is tidied up. Yeah, cheers, Josh. Hey, Dave, you preach it, brother. On editing, stand with you. It is that about that, isn't it? It's about when you're buying something, especially as it gets expensive. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel too. I don't mind if it's a freebie. I kind of overlook it. 
largely, unless it's really incomprehensible. So I'm with you on that. Second issue, um, I just wanted to say thank you for all the, um, you know, kind of philosophy of education stuff that you've been doing. Um, and I need to dig into more. But I wondered if there was for such as I, um, a teacher who's been out of that loop a while, a good starting point or a good kind of pickup point, really, um, that you could recommend somewhere where perhaps something I could read or something I could look at that would just be a good starting point. Maybe that is what you're doing. I don't know. But really want to dig deeper into philosophy of education. And um, yeah, thank you so much for inspiring it. Thanks, man. Hey, Che. Appreciate the call. Don't normally plug Philived on the show, but I'm going to take the opportunity. I will. There is a wonderful book that you can read, which is called The New Significance of Learning, Education's Heart Work. It's out in paperback. It's by Porrick Hogan, uh, P-A-D-R-A-E-I-G, Porrick Hogan, The New Significance of Learning. And it is a beautiful expression of a sort of really humane phenomenological approach to what education is and what that could mean for practice. And it's a book I wish, I mean, I very much admire. I very much admire Porrick and I wish, I wish I'd written that book. There are a couple, of, <laughs> a couple of other, there's quite a lot of books actually that I look at and think, oh, I wish I'd been the person who wrote that. But just, I mean, I, I sign up to that book uh, really quite strongly. And it's the one I recommend to people if you want to get into Philived and, and understand what what Philived could be. And uh, I mean, Porrick's got this wonderful. So, so it's beautifully written. Firstly, it's really humane and and uh, interacts with the humanities. You know, it takes a very literary and historical approach to educational practice. It doesn't. Um, you know, it's not a work of educational science. It's a work of uh, evocation of what education could be um, and it gets right down to the concrete level with some really uh, vivid and and telling discussions really insightful discussions of what that means even for the primary the primary classroom so yeah the new significance of learning education's heart work i've been very influenced by by a lot of porrick's work and that expression heart work the idea of education as a heart work El elsewhere he's called it a courtship um, you know, a courtship of the of the students' imagination and sensibilities. Um, just a really uh, fruitful read. Uh, so highly recommended. Oh, and just a quick summary of the other projects if people was in, were interested. So yeah, I started um, Theory Lab and that has now been absorbed by my learned society, which I'm quite pleased about. So, um, so if you're interested in what was going on in Theory Lab, have a look for PESGB Virtual, PESGB Virtual, which you can find on Spotify. It's also got a YouTube channel and our virtual online seminars. Um, I'm recording those and I'm ripping the audio and that's going up uh, on Anchor. So that's going on. Um, but having done that, uh, I'm glad that's happening. Um, but as I say, that kind of absorbed my, uh, my own podcast idea. Um, so I'm about to start another one <laughs> with, a, with a slightly broader remit of uh, humanistic approaches to education. So drawing on philosophy, history and literature with another colleague of mine uh, from my institution. And if you're interested in that, you want to look for humanising education. It already exists. We haven't put anything out yet, but you can find it on Anchor probably and follow it. Uh, and if I've got that wrong, uh, I think we called it humanising education. If I've got that wrong, I will immediately correct myself. I'm glad you're interested, Chair. I'm glad you're enjoying that. Um, 
Cheers for calling in. I got the podcast name right, but I got Porrick's book wrong. It's the new significance of learning imagination's heart work, not education's heart work. The new significance of learning imagination's heart work. Hi Dave, Gordon Centrum here. I'm I'm behind on everyone's uh, podcast at the moment, including your own. But uh, I did hear someone talk about having different levels or something in 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 RPGs. Now, I didn't really get the full gist of it, but... Maybe this is what they were talking about, but I have also I have have thought in the past about whether if you took a dungeon you wrote like an adventure and you wrote it at four different three different levels, sort of for one party at this this level like one to three, a party of five to seven, a party ten to twelve, take the same dungeon, but you just sort of sort of maybe start at the midpoint and you sort of amp it down a bit or sort of amp it up a bit or turn it tune it down a bit depending on who's going through it. So you know. If it's written for a high-level party, it's a beholder. If it's for a middle-level middle party, it's a, be- a wounded beholder where maybe not all of its eyes work. And for a low-level party, well, something else. <laughs> I don't know. Is that what they were talking about? Hey, Goblin's Henchman. Cheers for the call-in. Yep, yeah, good suggestion. I mean, I think I have done that. Um, and one thing is, when you're, when you're doing dungeons like I do, to, um, to be much more randomly populated, to make much more of, of encounter tables, then... I suppose mine could could come out at any level <laughs> rather than being easily adjustable. So I suppose I'm just not not so bothered what level the dungeon is. It's there in the world. Um, you turn up at it when you turn up at it, and it could be could be any hard as we used to say at school. I don't know. It could be any hard. <laughs> um, I mean, some some games do do this. So. What is it? Thirteenth age. So thirteenth age will give you a level range for adventures. I suppose that. Yeah, I suppose they only do that because um, they make such a big thing out of balance. So uh, the public published products. They published a series. I can't remember what the series were called, uh, but I think there's three books of of just sets of scenarios that were linked to particular icons. And for each of those, they had a little grid. For each encounter, there was a grid. <coughs> And they would give you the numbers of the relevant beasts and whether there were different versions of the beasts depending on what level, what average level the players hit it at. And so they did do that. But I, I think that's less of a sort of nifty feature that makes the adventures really repurposable and more just dealing with a quirk of 13th age, which is that from level to level, um, it can make a big difference balancing an encounter so it can easily be either be very easy or very fatal and so they needed to include those adjustments um you know even if even if the scenario was for levels one to three you know it makes a big difference you would not want to put your level one group against the level three iteration of that but I, I quite enjoyed the way they were presented you know just these little grids that said okay well if they're well if they're this level you'll want a couple more of the kobolds or if they're this level you can add in this extra elite beast that was quite fun yeah but maybe there's a maybe there's an exercise there um i mean that's why i really enjoy the lighter games i mean with the black hack if you've got a dungeon that looks like it's pretty much for a lower level, it's it's on the fly. You simply increase the level of your beasts, and it's balanced again. You might, if they've got spare, you know, some some games will add 
additional spells, additional special abilities, you know, additional things that the beasts can do at higher levels to make up for the extra things the players can do. In the black cake, you don't have to do that. So you're basically just increasing their difficulty and their hit points and they're balanced again. Um, and you wouldn't give them extra special abilities. You might just modify the damage of the special abilities. Um, and they're all, just by increasing the hit dice of the creatures, everything is scaled. Um, because that, that is then just becomes the modifier on the player's role to hit or avoid whatever the creature's throwing at them. So perhaps that's why I don't do it so much now. Um, it's because I'm tending to be running those games where you can scale things up really quite easily. Dude, I know it's all in love, man. And that's why I got to call in with a correction to your correction. Because in your episode 166, you do state that people's reservations on the black hack being able to sustain campaign play have been disproven. Uh, and I, those reservations have not been disproven. Uh, you then go on to say how your game isn't a campaign, but then you start talking about how it's changing. And that's, that was really interesting. Like this whole episode was, I, I thought it was great. It was thoughtful. Uh, and yeah, so let's, let's really get into some nitty gritty here. Is there a difference between campaign play and long-term play? That's the question. Peace out. Hey, Joe. Cheers for calling. Great to hear from you. <laughs> Maybe you've got me there. Maybe you haven't. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't gone back and dissected the episodes. I'll let constant listeners who want to go back and see whether... Uh, your interpretation of the general thrust of what I said uh, is more accurate than my recollection of it. <laughs> Maybe it is. Um, yeah, campaign is a is a strange word, really, to have been absorbed into the role-playing lexicon, isn't it? I mean, it must come from, I think, as uh, Spike Pitt first pointed out to me, it must, of course, come from the war game roots of, of the hobby in those earliest games. Um, maybe it doesn't help us very much. The idea of a campaign. Um, maybe that's the problem. That term we could really do without it or or in each case clarify what we're trying to express by it. Maybe there isn't much of a distinction between campaign and long-term play and in each case we should probably think more clearly about what it is that we're hoping to sustain in the game long-term. Yeah, so cheers for your thoughts. I really appreciate that. I'll catch you soon, Joe. Hello, Dave. It's Edwin here. Um, I'm sorry to do this, but I'm going to leave a message about character death. Uh, it's not going away. In your discussion with Joe, there was much mention of killing people capriciously. Uh, that's not not what's happening here. Um, a capricious death is when you cross, cross the street, um, taking all precautions, but suddenly you're hit by a bus. Uh, and you're dead. Um, that's a real life example. Shit happens in real life. Um, when you get into a fight, you reasonably expect to um, be injured. When you get into a fight where you're outnumbered or you're fighting somebody bigger than yourself, then the reasonable expectation that you might get injured should be greater. It seems to me that some people want to have player agency and talk about the beauties of sandboxes 
Um, but at the same time, they want to be shielded from the consequences of their player actions. If a player, or rather, if a character engages in combat, why should it be a surprise if that character is killed? Um, you have the choice not to engage in combat. You have the choice to run away. That's a very old school thing to do. Um, I think I don't. I don't understand it. There we go. Cheers for that, Edwin. I appreciate the calling. Yeah, just picking up on the end, running away. I mean, players do do it. Characters do do it in my games, but I imagine people could do it. A lot more often. <laughs> I sometimes find myself as we're down. Yeah, you know, we've got a couple of players gone down. Characters, sorry, gone down out of action. And you're thinking, oh, we could be heading for a total party kill. And I sometimes find myself, you know, in self-justification then saying, oh, well, you know, you could have run away. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, there is, of course, always the option of running away. I think I just, I use the term capricious in a fun sense. Um, in the same way, I hope you've picked up, that I, that I, I generally present myself as a, as a DM, as inimical to my, to my players, you know, oh, that didn't kill you, or oh, you've got a role to save against death. Good, good, good. You know, I'm always rubbing my hands with glee. It's all part of the persona, of course. Really, I'm just, you know, same as you. I want to tell a story in which everybody's character is as cool or avaricious or charming or deadly or whatever it is they've decided they'd like their character to be um i'm playing i'm just i'm playing for those great moments i'm playing for the yes <laughs> when you make your save against death same as everybody else but uh yeah gotta have a bit of a persona don't you <laughs> so there we go gone on a bit long but i think i can be forgiven uh, a half an hour episode on my one year anniversary of podcasting on this beautiful sunny bright morning in the garden warm birds are singing thanks again to my callers i haven't got quite got through all the call-ins but i'm catching up i really appreciate the call-ins do keep them coming in uh, and today you were listening to free thrall of course there at the top of the show we had edwin we had josh beckelheimer we had Che Webster, we had Joe Richter, we had Goblin's Henchman. I really appreciate the call-ins. Keep them coming. Thanks for listening, everybody, and keep well. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact Dave, please leave a message on Anchor, email dpercentile at gmail.com, or find him on Twitter at d underscore percentile. 